Well, for the last couple of weeks here at Rio, we've been looking together at Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've seen kind of a repeating refrain where Paul comes to us and in a variety of different ways, using all kinds of different language, he essentially says to us, hey guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you need to be somebody who knows the Word and somebody who lives the Word. You need to become a person of this book. And by this book, I'm not talking just about the letter of the Colossians. I think we've been clear on that. What I mean is the entirety of the Bible, every document, every letter, every page of Scripture in this book, Paul is coming to us and he's going, look, you need to be a person who knows this book and to be a person who then lives this book in faith. And if I can just nuance it a little bit for today, what he's saying is you need to favor the wisdom of this book above every other wisdom that exists. You need to favor the truths of this book and prefer it above every other so-called truth that you encounter. You need, and he says this very clearly, to favor the gospel of this book above every other gospel. And you need to know in advance before you head back out into the world that there is another wisdom, that there are other truths, and that there is another gospel that Paul's going to point at today. And he's going to say, take a good look at it, understand it, examine it, see it for what it is, and know this, it is no gospel at all. And how does he know that it's no gospel at all, because that's the key. He knows because it doesn't square with this book. This book is the scale. This book is the measure. This book is the standard by which every wisdom, every so-called truth, and every gospel is judged. Why? Because as we've said every single week, as we've gathered around this letter, it's not just The words of guys, you know, of men, of humans, of people, just like us. But it's the Word of God. And that's the difference. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of the one who knows everything. And that's significant. Why? Because unless you know absolutely everything, you cannot really, in fact, know for sure absolutely anything. It's a logical impossibility. See, if you don't know absolutely everything, well, then there's always the possibility, in fact, maybe even a really big possibility that there's some information out there, that there's some idea out there, that there's some perspective that you haven't gained or some vantage point from which you haven't seen something, and if you did, it would change everything you believe to be true in this moment. You're limited. You don't know everything. And so unless you know absolutely everything, you can't say for sure this is wisdom and this is truth and this is gospel, but God can and He comes to us and He does that in His Word. Paul comes to us with Jesus and he says, I want you to know something about this, Jesus. This is where we left off last week, Colossians 2 verse 3. He's saying Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all, not some, not most, not even just the really cool stuff, but all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge all of them. And the great thing is that he doesn't hide them from us. He comes to us and he says, oh, here, you want my mind? You want to know what I think? Do you want my wisdom and truth? Do you want to know what the gospel is? Here, let me give it to you in this book called the Bible. We're to know the Word and live the Word and favor the Word And it's wisdom and truth and gospel above every other so-called wisdom, truth, or gospel that exists. And as we return today to this letter and pick it up right where we left off, what we'll realize together as we kind of dig into it is that that's what Paul is afraid that these Colossians are about to fail to do. In other words, he knows that there are teachers among them that are sharing a false wisdom, a false truth, and a false gospel. And he's afraid that they're going to trade the real truth, the real wisdom, and the real gospel for this charade. 
And Jesus is the answer. And so he comes and he presents Christ right where we left off. And he says, guys, Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says this, verse 4. He says, and I say this, meaning I tell you this about Jesus, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in order that no one may delude you. The word means literally may lead you astray or deceive you. He's saying, don't let that happen. That's why I'm telling you this. And they may delude you with what? Because it's huge with plausible arguments. He's saying, listen, here's the deal. You need to know a couple of things. Number one, I want you to know that I know that there are people that have infiltrated your community, your church, okay, A, And B, I want you to know that I know that they're trying to lead you astray to delude you with arguments that sound reasonable. They seem plausible. In other words, they strike your ear and you go, yeah, that kind of makes sense, actually. They're persuasive. And there's something to be learned in that. You know, that's the way the wisdom of this world works. That's the way the truths of this world works. That's exactly the way the gospel of this world works. It strikes our ears and we go, you know, I'm not sure that I know what the problem with that is. I mean, you know, kind of, it makes sense to me. And I think sometimes it really actually just makes sense to me. And then there are other times in life where I just kind of think I want to make it to make sense to me because it would be really convenient for me if I could convince myself that it was true. It'd be really a lot less expensive if this instead of that was wisdom, it would allow me to do what I want to do when I want to do it. If I could just somehow make sense of this, sometimes it really makes sense. Sometimes we just kind of make sense of it. And in either case, Paul is like jumping up and down with the Bible in his hand and he's going, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I know that it seems like it makes sense, but, but it's not sense. It's not wisdom, it's not truth, and it's not the gospel because it contradicts the teachings of this book. That's, that's how I know. He says, I say this about Jesus. I, you need to know that it's in him that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in order so that no one may delude you or lead you astray or deceive you with these seemingly plausible arguments. For though, he says, I am absent in body, I'm not there with you to fight these guys off for you. He says, yet I am present with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your what? Of your faith. But of your faith in what? In all these things that these false teachers are coming along and telling you that you need to do to gain the favor of God? No. Of your faith in Jesus. He's saying, I rejoice to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ and in His true gospel, which says that He did it all. Therefore, He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, which was parenthetically by faith, you know, not by being a good person to the point where Jesus finally goes, you know, I think you're good enough. Now you would be mine. Not going to happen. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, which was by faith, so walk in Him. So live in Him by faith, he's saying, rooted and built up where? In Him and established how? In the faith, just as you were taught at the very beginning when when we came to you with this real gospel before all these people entered in and started introducing all of this stuff into your thinking. Abounding, he then says, with thanksgiving. Paul is coming to these guys and he's saying, guys, do you remember the wisdom that you first learned? Do you remember the truths that we first shared with you? Do you remember the gospel that you first learned? A gospel by faith, a gospel by grace, a relationship with God purchased not by you in any sense, 
but by Jesus and given to you through your faith in Him. He's saying, don't forsake that. Don't run away from that. Don't leave that. Grow in that and discard everything else. And in case they missed it, he says it again just with different language. In verse 8, he says, see to it. And this time he says that no one takes you captive. Before he says, don't let yourself be led astray or deceived. Now he's saying, don't let these guys who are teaching you these things take you prisoner. See to it that no one takes you captive by what? By plausible sounding, no doubt, philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. What's the problem with all things human? It's okay, we all suffer from this issue. You know what the problem is? A, it's corrupt, sorry, but it is. And B, it's limited. It's very, very limited. It's limited to what we can see. It's limited to what we can know. It's limited to what we can figure out. It's limited to what we think. And that's a lot smaller I think, than we realize. He says, guys, don't, don't let these guys take you prisoner, okay, with their philosophy and empty deceit. According to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits, it means basically the basic principles, the elementary school. You can hear that in that word, can't you? All that stuff that you graduated from when you came to faith in Jesus, that, that immature stuff that you left behind and you recognized as false back in the day. He's like, don't, don't let them recapture you with that stuff. According to these elemental principles or spirits of the world and not, because here's the corollary, the absolute opposite, not according to Christ. He's saying if you are not careful, the so-called wisdom, truths, and gospel of this world is going to come along, it's going to lead you astray, it's going to deceive you, and it's going to make you its prisoner. And here's what makes it dangerous. When it strikes your ear, you think, yeah, that kind of makes sense. What makes it dangerous is that it sounds plausible, whereas the true gospel doesn't. It sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? You really? I mean, think about it for a minute. Everything in your life tells you that good things come to those who perform. Isn't that right? I mean, that's what you learned at school. You're like, no, I learned English. and No, you learned this. This was a major lesson. Good things come to those who perform. The good students, they work hard, okay? Those people, hey, they get the good grades, they get the awards, they get the accolades, they get the recognition, they get to go to the good college. And if they continue to perform well there, ah, then they get to graduate to the workplace of their choice. And what does the workplace of their choice then teach them and you and me? That good things come to those who perform. The performers get the promotions. The performers get the bonuses. The performers, you know, get the corner offices. The world of opportunity opens up to those who perform. And everything in life, it seems to me, teaches us that. Even our relationships, oftentimes, very sadly, teach us the same things. Many of us grew up in homes where, you know, the expectations were fairly clear. We bumped up against them enough to figure out what they were. And we realized that if we performed and met expectation, well, then life would go well for us. And if we didn't, Not so much. It works out that way in marriage too. It becomes this performance-based deal where you're earning what should be freely given. So anyway, everything in life, it seems to me, teaches us that good things come to those who perform. And then you come up against the gospel and it is the utter antithesis. It's like, what? No. Are you kidding? Bad things come to those who trust in their performance. Absolute opposite. 
it shatters our performance. It just says, okay, you want to you talk about performance? Okay, if you want to trust in your performance in terms of your favor with God, your relationship with God, and all that kind of stuff, here's the deal. His standard, absolute perfection. Thought, word, and deed from the moment of conception to your last breath. What does that mean? It means you're doomed. I mean, there is no shot at that. No way. The gospel comes along and says, no, we're going to forsake the rule of the world here. Here's how good things come. Good things come to those who trust in the performance of Jesus. You receive the reward for all that he did. He receives the punishment for all that you did. And you look at it and go, doesn't make sense. Doesn't sound fair. It does. And yet it's the word of the all-knowing God. It's the true gospel. But it's counterintuitive. See, that's one problem. Here's another. The true gospel, with all of its claims about God, a God who loves you, a God you can trust, a God who ordains all things, a God who takes all things and works them together for his good, for the good, rather, of his people and so forth. I mean, all of these scriptural claims about God and about the gospel don't always make sense either, particularly when life, you know, doesn't go so well for us. We look at the gospel and we look at our life and we think, eh, I'm not so sure that makes sense. I'll give you an example. I got an email a couple of weeks ago uh, from a girl that I'm friends with, and she lives in another city, and she's working with a guy who is ex-special forces, ex-military, and I'm just going to call him Bill, okay? Uh, His name is Jeff, but we'll go with Bill. Um, I'm kidding. It's not Jeff. It's Mark. No, it's not. It's not any of those names. It's not any of those names. I'm going to call him Bill, okay? So she's trying to share Jesus with this guy, tell him about this God and the scriptural claims of it and all this kind of stuff. And he's telling her about some of the things that he witnessed and experienced and even did in war. And it was, it's just like, you have no category for this stuff. I mean, if you've never been there, if you've never done it, and I haven't, it's like, you know, you just, wow, unbelievable. This guy in war, and of course it was the bad guy that he was shooting, but he shot people, killed them, took them down. Now, it's the bad guy. It's war. It's eat or be eaten. I understand all of that. But I cannot imagine that there is any scenario under which you can scope in another human being and shoot and watch them fall and not be scarred. You can suppress that. You can deny that. You can ignore that. But wow. He told her he had 15 men under his direct command all die under his command in one day. And he feels responsible for that, like to this day. He called every one of their family members. Can you imagine that? How do you tell that and explain that to a mom or to a dad? This is their son that he's talking about, or to a husband, or to a wife, rather, or to a child. So she's coming along, and she's trying to tell him about this God who loves him and that he can trust, and, you know... And I mean, you can understand how he's weighing that against what he's experienced in life and going, man, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. So she sent me an email and said, what would you say? And I said, oh, great, thanks. (laughs) It's an occupational hazard, these emails. And there's really no easy answer to that. I don't know that there's a one answer to that. I guess maybe there are a lot of answers to it. I'm going to read you my note. I said, wow, well, (laughs) here goes. I said, I like to think of my life like a little puzzle piece. It's one small part of a really big picture that I cannot see. 
In fact, all that I can see is my one little piece, and I can see its colors and hues and shapes, and I can speculate about what it all is and about what it all means, but that's the best that I can do because I can't see the rest of the picture into which my life fits and in which alone its final meaning and purposes are found. God alone sees that big picture, and God alone has the box top of the puzzle. And in fact, He created that puzzle. It's His puzzle, and here's the deal. He also created my little life with all of its colors and hues and often odd, nonsensical shapes, and He created it to fit into the whole of His big picture and in that big picture and finding its place, and only then to make perfect sense. And so I said to her, quite frankly, in light of that, I kind of think that it's unreasonable and arrogant of me to demand that my life make perfect sense to me before I can ever believe in God or in His character or in His purposes. Why? Because my vision is too limited. The scope of my wisdom is too small, and God, and life for that matter, has not led me to believe otherwise. I go to God's Word, you know, this book. And He tells me directly in this book that His thoughts are not my thoughts and that His ways are not my ways. He tells me plainly that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so also are His thoughts than my thoughts. And so then what is He telling me? Well, at the very least, He's saying to me, Tom, you're finite and I'm infinite. You're limited and I am unlimited. By your nature, you are incapable of comprehending all of my thoughts and ways, and you cannot reasonably expect to be able to do so. Such an expectation is illogical, Tom. There will be things in your life for which you will have no explanation. Expect it. Things that make no sense. Anticipate it. Pain that seems meaningless and pointless from your itty-bitty, microscopic, puny, infinitesimally small, sin-stained, corrupted perspective. So if I can say this gently, then... Get over yourself and stop arrogantly assuming that I am as limited as you are and that just because you can't make sense of it all that I won't be able to make sense of it either. Stop with your faithlessness and do what I've called you to do, to trust me even when nothing makes sense. For what is faith? Tom, I've told you what faith is. I've given you its definition. I'm not hiding these things from you. I've put it in my word. Go to my Word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not things actualized, not things already in your hands. Faith is the conviction of things not seen as opposed to what you can in this life see. And there are plenty of things, my son, that you have not yet seen, like the whole rest of my really huge and amazing picture, you know, the one into which your little life fits. Have you read the story of Job, Tom? Have you read what I ordained in life for him? Have you compared your sufferings to that most famous of all sufferers? Did you notice that there were tons of things happening in that story which fully justified and made sense of his sufferings, but that Job was completely unaware of, thus his and your questionings? Have you read what I said to him? Perhaps you should read it again. And have you considered my son Jesus? who left all of heaven with all its glories and suffered trials and temptations like no other man, not even you. A man of sorrows who can fully sympathize with your weaknesses and yet without sin, a man who on the cross asked why. Now that is something you can relate to.
And what was the answer? Well, in that moment, there was no answer. But you know the answer, don't you? The answer is for you. You're not supposed to know the answers to every question life leads you to pose, and there will be many. I'm supposed to know the answer, and here's the thing, I do. You are supposed to trust in me, and when you doubt my love or goodness, you're supposed to go to the cross over and over and over again where my love for you is forever and indelibly written in the most precious ointment ever fashioned, the blood of my precious son. It is a healing balm for the troubled heart and mind. Stop with your fussing. Set aside your anger and quit demanding answers that you're not even equipped to understand and run instead to my cross, which was a tree of death to my son, but which is a tree of life to you. Eat the fruit of his body, drink the wine of his blood, and come home, my son, to the Father who loves you, who collects all of your tears in his bottle, Psalm 56, 8 and who promises one day to wipe them all away, Revelation 21.4, as I reveal to you the great beauty of your life as it finally finds its place in my picture. There, the colors and hues and odd nonsensical shapes will suddenly make sense, and there you will stand in awe of how I can take even the darkest, most evil, awful things, like the unjust murder of my own son, for example, and out of them bring light and beauty and goodness, and life. Come home, my son. Do not delay. Then I said, now substitute Bill for Tom and hope that helps. But the true gospel doesn't always make sense. It's counterintuitive. You look at it and go, really? Wow. I mean, it's different from everything that life leads you to expect. And then, of course, there are times in life where you look at the claims of this God of this word, of this gospel, and you go, I don't know, man, because look at what's happened to me. What's the problem? The problem is not this word. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is that you and I are really, really small, that we can't see outside the edges of our little lives, that our vision and our wisdom is severely limited and incapacitated by the corruption of our own hearts. See, the problem isn't with us. It's that we, there's information out there that we don't have. There are ideas that have never and will never occur to us in this life. There's a perspective from which we have not seen things, and it is, Paul is saying, the perspective of the all-knowing Jesus who looks at the gospel and the truths and wisdom of this world, you see, and from his perspective, even though they make sense to us, he says those are false, and then he looks at the true gospel, and even though sometimes that doesn't make sense to us, he says that's true. And really, only He can say. Our job is to believe. And so Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by these plausible-sounding, you know, philosophy and, and empty deceit, according to the human traditions. My goodness, that should be enough, he's saying, according to the elementary school principles or the basic principles of this world and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Jesus, he says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We said that last week, the invisible God, who, by the way, knows everything, made visible in Him. The incomprehensible God who comprehends everything made 
comprehensible, at least as much as he can be. And him, transcendent God, leaving heaven, taking on a body, come to rescue you and I. In him, he says, in Jesus, the whole, not most, but all of the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, and you have been filled in him. So then, is there anything lacking? Is there anything incomplete? Is there anything that now you, with your good works and, you know, whatever, need to add? No. He's like, all of the fullness of God dwells bodily in him, and you've been filled in him, his spirit, his life, his energy, his wisdom as you fill your heart and mind with the wisdom of this book. He says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, he says, and this is a little confusing, but follow along. He says, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off not some mere portion of the flesh. That's what the circumcision with hands does. But putting off what? The entire body of flesh. You've put off your sinful natures. You've put off your corrupt affections. They were crucified in him. By the circumcision of Christ, not the circumcision that he got when he was eight days old, by the cutting off from the land of the living that he experienced on the cross in our place. Having been buried, what does that speak of? Actual death. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also, he says, raised with him from the dead. So you just go all the way through the cycle of life there. It's it's fascinating. You have life, you have death, you have burial, and you have resurrection. But but of who? You're like, of Jesus, that's only the partially the answer, of Jesus and of you if you have faith in Jesus. He's saying, look, through your intimate connection with Jesus through faith, you live the perfect life that God demands of you. You're like, really, I did? I must have been out to lunch on that. No, you didn't. Jesus did, but it's credited to you as if you did. Through your intimate faith connection with Christ, all of your sin has been suffered for, punished and, you know, has been died for, where? In the Lord. In Him you died to your flesh, as He died to the flesh. And His resurrection was your resurrection. It was the final word that death will not be the final word for anyone who has faith in Christ. And so Paul continues in verse 13, and he says, "...and you who were once," is the idea, "...dead." You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You had not died to your flesh through faith in Christ. He says, you who were once dead, God made alive. He doesn't say you who were once feeling kind of bad spiritually, God came along and nursed back to health. It's language of death and life. If you have faith in Christ, it's because He's brought you to life from the dead He says, and you who were once dead spiritually in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all. That's such an awesome word. It's small, but it's huge. Not some, not most of our trespasses. It's not like, okay, 90% was forgiven in Jesus and you're going to have to work off the rest. All of it. 
By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands as we sin against God, we started running an infinite and an eternal tab. It's like Jesus covered it. It's done. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, meaning that debt, God set aside, nailing it to the tree. He disarmed, he says, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Therefore, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And you can hear in that what these false teachers were telling them they needed to do in addition to Christ. You know, they were coming along and going, okay, hey, it's really nice that you have Jesus. That's cool. But you also need to do this and this, and you can't do that. And if this, you've got to do this on Wednesday, and then you have to walk backwards half a mile. And then, you, you know, Paul's saying, no, 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 no. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. You're full of Him. You don't don't need to do this stuff. All of your sin, nailed to the tree, done, gone. History, debt canceled. You don't need to work now. It's not the point. He says these things which these guys are coming along and telling you you need still to do are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They all pointed toward Jesus, and now that he's come and lived, died, been buried, and risen from the dead, they're done. They've finished. They're fin- you know, their, their purpose is complete. They're obsolete. Let no one, he's saying, disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, on some rigorous lifestyle full of rules and regulations that you have to keep, you know, so you can have a relationship with God and make Him happy and get Him to answer your prayers. And he says, it's all nonsense. Don't let them do that to you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels as opposed to the worship of Christ, the King of angels, going on about visions that he's saying are clearly not from God, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, he desires to control you, and not holding fast to the head which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so Paul continues, if with Christ you died to these nonsensical elementary school principles, these principles of the world, these things that seem like wisdom but aren't, then why, as if you were still alive in the world and dead to Jesus, do you submit to this stuff? To these regular, why are you listening to these guys who tell you, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things, he says, that all perish as they are used according to human precepts? How many times can he throw that word in? And teachings, but not according to this book. These things, he says, again, have an appearance of wisdom. That's what makes them dangerous. They seem reasonable. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. In stopping the indulgence of the flesh, Paul's saying, look, if the question is one of wisdom, if it's one of truth, if it's one of the true gospel that leads to real salvation, real freedom, real relationship with God, real abundant and eternal life, then the answer is not found in the wisdom and the truth and the gospel of this world, no matter how sensible it seems in the moment. It's too limited. Its vision is too small. It's found in the gospel of the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
and who alone, by the way, is worthy of our trust, even in those moments of life where we go, "Eh, you know, this isn't making sense to me. I don't get it. And so where do we learn all that stuff? We learn it in this book. Know the Word. Live the Word. Commit yourself to that this year. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for a gospel that is real. We thank You for one whose wisdom transcends all other wisdom. Lord, whose truth is a truth that can be trusted. Lord, whose gospel really saves, delivers on all of its promises in ways that exceed our imagination and our ability to conceive. We thank You for the one who has given us his mind in this book called the Bible. And I pray, God, that You give us the faith and the grace that we need to take up this wisdom and read to open up this book and learn, to take these principles and this gospel and trust and live. I pray, Lord, that as we have come to Christ in faith, that it is then in Christ that we will now move forward in that same faith, in that same Jesus. And I pray that we will see the fruit of that wisdom born in our lives to Your glory, that people might notice that we're different because we live by a different wisdom, we run by a different truth, and we trust in a different gospel. Thank You for one whose performance is sufficient to cover us all and give us the faith that we need now to trust in that and to forsake our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.